think I'm doing those eyes. <laughs> I think I'm in love. It was terrifying. The pain, the, the fear of being eaten. I was drowning at the same time. I just accepted that I was going to die. Was there a bit of fandom for you when it came on? Oh, you huge. And I did not try to hide. <laughs> did not try to hide at all. Out of the box with Serge Negus on FBI. Massive thanks to Alex Pye for an epic morning of tunes. If you missed anything she played, you can head to fbiradio.com to catch up on mornings or any other program here at FBI Radio. Now, my guest on the show today has been on a continual journey for a place to call home. Arriving in Australia as a four-year-old from Taiwan, her parents were hoping to give her a new start in life. But that new start created another type of struggle. Her family was culturally very strict, and from a young age, they didn't approve of her choices. Not her career choice, nor even the man she chose to marry. Racism and prejudice from her own people, as well as broader society, were a massive part of her life. So she rebelled, which eventually led her down a fascinating path to end up as a showgirl in Shanghai, and now as an actor and a writer and a self-professed movement geek. Her name is Genevieve Chang. Genevieve, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Now, look, before we get stuck into the nitty-gritty of it all, before your family actually even left Taiwan, your family history itself, incredibly your grandma's, is such an incredible story, and it is uncannily similar in a way to yours, but also polar opposite, if that makes any sense. But can you give us a bit of a background into your grandmother? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, my grandmother, she was born to an aristocratic family in Hunan, um, which is also coincidentally where Chairman Mao came from. Um, So she was a landowner and uh, she was born at a time of great social change. And... um, you know, like when she became a young woman, unbeknownst to her, she was going to lose everything because of the revolution. But before all that happened, uh, she went to Shanghai, uh, where she attended university. And she was a, a young woman in the most exciting scene in the world. Um, Shanghai was known alternately as the Paris of the East, as mm-hmm. well as the whore of the Orient. Um, <laughs> it was a place where um, a lot of uh, internationalists des- descended upon because it was a bustling trading port. Um, and it was this place where East met West and old and new were colliding and um, a lot of money was passing through, a lot of drugs. It was the opium capital of the world as well. So pretty um, pretty wild and fun, cool place. Really. Wild, decadent, <laughs> um, bohemian, also dangerous as yeah. well. A lot of um, mafia. Especially, I imagine, mm. for a, an educated young woman in that point in time, right? Like, yeah. She went to, God, like, what year would have that been in the, that she went to university? That's oh, almost unheard of. Now. Yeah, it, w- it would have been in the 1930s. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, the height of it all. And then, and so she was forced out, and and what happened next? Where did she go after that? Um, She was, so yes, you know, revolution happened, and the country was split in two between nationalists and communists. Um, She was a young woman at the time, obviously, and um, it just so happened that um, as the communists swept through her province, they decreed that all unmarried women over the age of 16 had to marry someone from the Communist Party. And so she was like (laughs) left in this predicament where she didn't want to marry across enemy lines. And um, lo and behold, uh, a matchmaker stepped in and introduced her to my grandfather, who was a nationalist official, recently widowed. Um, And so she ended up marrying him, even though she did have a boyfriend, uh, but he was too far away um, to marry her in time. So she ended up marrying my grandfather. Wow. And and I mean, and then where did they go from there? But at what point did they actually yeah. get themselves out of the country? Well, kind of really lucky that she married him because he was um, high up enough in the government that when um, everything went tits up, <laughs> <laughs> um, he had a um, ticket. Uh, on one of the last departing planes out of the country and he managed to get her onto that plane mm-hmm. as well through some quick thinking. And um, and that they left the country to Taiwan um, thinking that they would be back um, in China within no time and they would defeat the communists. And, of course, we now know that that never happened. Um, yeah. Crazy, crazy stuff. Mm. And then, I mean, growing up, though, for you then, like you, you obviously were born in Taiwan, but then your family moved pretty quickly to Australia. I mean, mm. why did they move here? 
Yeah, so um, growing up in Taiwan, my father especially um, was brought up, instilled with this fear that um, China and the communists on the mainland could at any point just hop over the strait and retake mm. over the island and um, it would be, you know, disastrous because my grandfather was a kind of wanted um, yeah. counter-revolutionary and, and so forth and facing ex- execution. Um, and so it was all about him, like, he, him growing up was all about building a bridge um, out of Taiwan and into the West. So um, my my grandparents worked really, really hard and he was one of the first of that generation to um, get an overseas education. He moved to um, the USA at first and this was like right after he and my mother were married um, and I'd just been born. So I hardly spent any time in Taiwan before you know we were out of there and we spent three years in the States um, before moving to Australia because the green card didn't come through or something like that. And yeah. I mean, you've got to explain to us as well what that what your family upbringing was like. I mean, like you say, you, it was a strict family upbringing, and they expected good grades, a good job, all, all the kind of stereotypical things that you mm. hear, really. Mm-mm. But I mean, how did that impact on you personally, though? That pressure. Yeah, I mean, I think there was also. I definitely felt a shift um, moving from the States to Australia. I think, you know, as as we know, like this was in the early 80s and um, the white Australia policy had only been like collapsed in the last decade. So um, I did feel kind of, um, I did feel really different all of a sudden in a way that I hadn't really noticed in the States. Mm. Um, so there was that. And um, I certainly think as well, whereas in the States, there had been like a more established Chinese community around my parents. There was not that mm. in Australia. Mm. And I certainly remember moving here, me feeling kind of different on, on, on a broad level. Mm. But um, my father changing, like just I was only four years old, but I remember thinking that my father had changed into a person that I didn't know and was scared of. Um, He became really angry and he became quite violent. And, you know, like in hindsight, I think what would have happened was that he came to Australia and he experienced a lot of kind of displacement and alienation Mm. um, that would have been fairly new to him as well, um, or to that scale anyway, and to compensate for his kind of disempowerment outside the home um well he overcompensated by becoming kind of really angry and controlling and needing to assert his authority more so than ever and i mean how do you think you would have turned out i guess if that might not have been the case if he didn't end up like that where do you think you'd be now do you think you'd be doing the same things um, yeah, maybe I wouldn't have become a showgirl. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a bit of rebellion in that. Well, look, we'll get stuck more into that in a bit, but the, you've got some great music for us today. The first song you've got for us is by Morrissey, the last of the famous international playboys. Tell us about this song and, and why you've chosen it. Yeah, um, I think the first time I heard it was uh, in my late teens, and um, I'm around with a crowd who kind of fancy themselves to be quite anarchic and gothic and punk. Um, And Morrissey was like one of our favourites. I like this song because it made me want to like travel the world. It made me want to like grow up and become an international um, playgirl or like to treat the world as my playground. Um, I certainly think that one of the reactions against you know, repression or, um, you know, growing up with parents who were controlling is hedonism. And Mm. I think that listening to this song kind of touched on my early hedonistic uh, nerve that would have, that would blossom later on in life. Oh, no. 
You're listening to Out of the Box and FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest today is author Genevieve Chang, who has written an amazing book about her life as a burlesque dancer and also, I guess, the continued racism she's experienced on various different levels in society, including within her own family. Now, on that note, um, you know, you refer to what Ali Wong refers to as fancy Asians and jungle Asians. Now, can you please explain to us what <laughs> that means? Well, look, the first time I heard it was um, Ali Wong um, in her comedy show, Baby Cobra, I think. And it just resonated so much because it is so true. And it's something that's not often talked about, the way that um, races and cultures discriminate against their own based on this really kind of complex hierarchy and construct. And the way that... um, Ali Wong has painted this picture of fancy versus jungle is that fancy typically um, refers to, I suppose, Northeast Asian countries and jungle to, um, yeah, the southern neighbours where um, it's kind of less economically advantaged. There's Mm. lots of jungles and skins are darker. And, you know, in this kind of really crude way, um, the colour of skin tone does play into it. It's almost like, you know, it is like darker the skin, um, the more likely you are to be a jungle Asian uh, because you've spent much more of your life having to work out in the fields rather than like staying indoors and being a person of leisure. Like Mm. it's that kind of simplistic and um, absurd. And what did your Mm. family, I guess, classify themselves as then in that regards? Mm. Yeah, um, I think... I think the um oh that's that's a really interesting question probably uh, yes I would have liked to have thought themselves as fancy Asians or just Asians you know who um were going to be fancy one day which is kind of the story of mainland China because I mean you know um in the 20th century China went through such awful upheaval and you know the story of China is that it was once you know um or its Chinese name is literally the middle kingdom the center of the universe um but you know with western imperialism coming in and the opium wars in the 18th century China was like forced down to its knees by the British Mm. and the Europeans and the Japanese and it was such a shock to them to the whole Chinese culture and the 20th century and therefore communism coming in was to kind of try and like seize back some control and seize back some pride and I think my parents were very much of that generation like having been told how wonderful and pure the Chinese culture was but knowing that at that point in time um, you know the Chinese culture Uh, the Chinese nationhood was in a crippled state and it was of utmost importance to China and to Chinese people to claw their way back to uh, prosperity. So it's 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 always about like becoming fancier. That's so interesting. It's mm. such it's such an interesting power play as well <clears throat> in the way that it uh, I guess spreads out on a geopolitical scale, isn't it? Yeah, it's fascinating. Well, look, moving forward into the music again, the next song you've got is going to paint a bit of a picture of of this kind of era, I guess, to us. It's different trains. Tell us about this song, who it's by, and and why you've chosen it for this moment 
Okay, yeah, so Different Trains is by Steve Reich, and I think it was a collaboration with the Cronus Quartet. Um, I chose this song because um, it's also very reminiscent of my contemporary dance training years. So I um, left Australia in my early 20s to go to Laban Dance School, and um, we choreographed my favourite dance that I performed there to this track. Um, so, you know, it is kind of a real example of minimalist, experimental, avant-garde music that came out of the oh, 60s and 70s. Um, but also, I think this song is really meaningful because it's um, Steve Wright composed it um, out of um, his experience during World War II as a child, um, traveling between, I think it was Chicago and New York, and um, him reflecting that had he been in Europe at the time, he would probably be on a train to the concentration camps. Um, wow. And this is like, I think the one that I've chosen is the first movement out of three different movements. Um, and um, as part of the soundtrack, he's recorded... Um, uh, conversations of people on the trains and I think it's in the second movement he's actually recording the conversation of people traveling to concentration camps um, wow. so it's a song about war and migration mm. and the journeys that we are forced upon so you know it's obviously a, a really important song for today and not that much has changed since World War II if you look at it in that context but certainly from my family story um, my grandmother and my parents and me it is about journeys it is about running away from something Thank you. 
Serge Negus. My guest today is author Genevieve Chang, who's written this amazing book about her life as a burlesque dancer and I guess the continued racism she's experienced around the world in different scenes. But look, onto that topic, you were engaged and got married to a man from Nigeria, very similar to you in that he'd kind of emigrated to England um, and, you know, was, I guess, someone who wasn't accepted by your family as your boy-to-be. Can you run us through how that felt? Yeah, um, obviously really awful, but um, also, like, I should say that my parents hadn't approved of any man I dated <laughs> up to that point. Like, okay, you yeah. know, whether it was, like, not driving the right car or, like, not wearing the right clothes or not having the right job or not, like, you know, mm. um, coming from the right class. So it wasn't an unfamiliar feeling, Um and I guess being the optimistic person that I am, I thought that, look, you know, this is really, this is a serious relationship. I'm going to marry this person. I am in love with this person. My parents have, like, issues, but I'm sure they'll, like, get over it because, you know, this is happening. Um, and so I was really, uh, yeah, kind of, I was, I, I was uncomfortably surprised mm. and disappointed by how, virulent and um, the depth of their prejudice and like just seeing it and experiencing it up close. What what um, forms did it take in that sense? Like mm. how exactly how did they address it with you? Yeah um, it was it was yeah look it was um, my mother refusing to attend the wedding Um, and it was I mean I wasn't really speaking to my father up till then um, so that wasn't a, a huge loss, but, you know, say I, I was married to this man for seven years and, you know, um, towards the end of our marriage, my father was still refusing to acknowledge him. And that was, you know, that was like, wow, this is like a marathon of prejudice and hate. And I can't believe you have this amount of, um, yeah, fear and ignorance inside you. And since then, you, you guys have actually separated. Mm. Do you mm. think that, you know, I guess the, I guess that prejudice that you constantly felt from your family, from your parents, had an impact on the longevity of your relationship? Yeah. Oh, look, it wasn't um, the thing that ended us. I mean, mm. you know, relationships mm. are, compl- are very, very complex and yeah, it certainly wasn't, and I and I don't blame my parents, but I do know, like being with subsequently um, after my marriage ended, and now dating somebody from the same culture as my parents, and they like fully support that relationship. Like the starkness of how much easier it is to. Um, help a relationship survive with family and community support around you versus not is massive. Mm. You know, it's certainly like with everything that, um, with all the challenges that a young marriage faces, especially a marriage that, you know, moves to a new environment into a foreign country, um, that as well as family, um, resistance and objection just makes it extremely hard and I certainly think that you know when all the doubt set in and when all the fear set in um you know with the relationship collapsing it did seem easier to run away rather than to face it felt like at the time this kind of avalanche of barriers Mm. that um the relationship had to survive against 
Now, moving mm. on to the music. So, what are you going to play for us for here at this point? Okay, so, um, yeah, I, I guess I'm going to play this track called Familiarize by Kaziah Jones. Um, and, yeah, it's an homage to my relationship with this man um, whose name um, is Fella, named after Fella Kuti. Wow. Yeah, and Keziah Jones was a friend of my um, is a friend of my ex husband's, and his music is also inspired by Fellow Cootie, and his music was kind of always in the background um, of our bedroom. So this is it. If I try to take you there, would you come with me? Reason flies, fear is scared. Ocean love the sea. If I try to take you there, would you come with me? Reason flies and fear is scared. Ocean love the sea. Say, ocean love the sea. Say, ocean love the The feeling called musical Hey yeah
You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus, and my guest today is author and actor and dancer Genevieve Chang. Now, look, I mean, beyond just facing racism from the areas that we've addressed now, from your family and whatnot, when you, let's go back to Australia when you first arrive here, you know, you're in kindergarten, and you actually had to anglicise your name on the suggestion of a teacher. I mean... <laughs> It's ridiculous to think yeah. about. How did that? How did that? How did that impression on you? How did that? What did that make you feel about the world you were living in? Well, you know, it was all part of this greater message that it's really important to fit in and mm. to somehow, you know, um, insert myself into this dominant culture um, in a way that was easier for everybody else. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like, yeah. it's that, which is so common, which hasn't really changed in, in terms of And it doesn't just happen in, <clears throat> like, our culture either because, I mean, I've, like my brother mm. who does a lot of business in China as well, mm. he, whenever he goes there, his business cards have his Chinese name on him. And so in some way, like, it's almost like it is something that's very common across all cultures but where does it actually place you you know like how does it actually place the individual yeah yeah look I think I yeah and I was so young like I would have been what four or five but I I don't I can't even remember how it happened but I just remember like my teacher struggling with my name and then also like other people laughing wow. and I can't it, like, you know, I don't remember the exact words and I don't even know whether she actually said it, but it was just like, Oh, I just felt like I had to change my name, you know? And I told my parents, I have to change my name, you know? Um, and you know, that's just, that's one of many examples. That's like just part of a bigger thing of, you know, having to adapt your identity mm. to, to fit in with other people's expectations, which is like a bit of a running theme in my life, which is yeah. kind of what the memoir is about as well, because, yeah. It's, it's a wild thing that it's had such an impact on your whole story going through your whole life. It's insane. And I mean, and what other kind of, I guess, encounters did you have in your, in the instance of growing up here in Australia that, you know, really kind of smacked you in the face when it came to race relations, I guess? Yeah. Um, look, it was... Certainly when I was growing up, you know, there was a name calling, um, you know, the Ching Chongs and, yeah. um, I, you know, Nip and Gook, I remember being prevalent, um, people shouting their cars, like things that don't happen anymore yeah. to such an extent because, well, I, I certainly don't see it, which is, like, great, such a fabulous mm. sign of progress. But um, it was pretty prevalent when I was growing up. Um, I remember um, going to a summer camp and, like, there was this, there's this awful kind of game that the counsellors made us play, which was, you know, there's two circles. There's a circle of um, boys, a, a, a small circle of boys, and then, like, a larger circle of girls outside. Mm. And then, like, you have to kind of rotate the circles and the music stops and um, and then the boy has to, like, I don't know, like, dance with the girl that he stops in front of. And I remember that, hap like, that happening and stopping in front of this boy and he refused to dance with me because... And he said, I can't dance with you because I don't like Asians. Wow. Yeah. And how did... I mean, how did this impact on you when you ended up deciding to move back to China did it have an impact like all of these sort of things well I wanted to leave Australia so I, I moved to London first um, and I lived there for five years before going to China but um, yeah it, I guess I wanted to yeah leave Australia because I just got this sense that there were places in the world where it was gonna where it was gonna be easier yeah. certainly as like a performer as well um, so I guess like you know growing up I felt both invisible and visible yeah 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 yeah. Whew, it's a wild thing to think about that yeah isn't it? well look getting onto the music again unfortunately we do have time constraints through this show which is frustrating because sometimes i feel like i can talk <laughs> for another two hours but yeah. getting onto the tracks we've got queen c big shark hold your hand never heard of this mm. song before in my life mm. give us a little bit of a rundown okay <clears throat> so queen c big shark um yeah i had to really hunt this song down so they're a um, 
a, a Beijing-based uh, rock band, and I think they formed in the last 10 years. Um, so in 2008, when I moved to China, um, you know, motivated by this urge to figure out what this culture was actually about, because though I'd been brought up Chinese, I'd, I'd never lived in the culture, so I wanted to figure it out on my terms, and I found this um, country that was, and, and these kind of... Um, movements in the country, the youth movement in particular, that was kind of bursting with vitality and creativity. You know, it's almost like proportionate to the repression. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like an elastic band going bing. Um, and um, yeah, by kind of a, a twist of fate, I ended up on, um, I ended up going on China's first uh, rock and roll rock and roll road trip, uh, sponsored by Converse, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and um, it was Queen C, Big Shark, and another band that were playing. And the whole idea was to showcase um, China's underground, very little known underground rock culture. Awesome. awesome. And yeah, and and um, we stumbled into this uh, dive bar where it was all kicking off. And um, I remember hearing these guys play and it was just a revelation. Like it was so raw and unfiltered, the sound. And it was so different to um, the sugar sweet mando pop that I'd been brought up on that I thought was Chinese music.
You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus, and my guest today is author Genevieve Chang, who's written an amazing book about her life as a burlesque dancer and the kind of continued racism that has shaped her journey, her story in many ways. It's pretty incredible, so I'd highly recommend going and checking it out. But uh, look, you know, you've moved to Shanghai after being in London, and you've what were your plans when when you headed there? Because you, you, you ended up becoming a burlesque dancer, but what, mm. like, what were your plans? Did that was that what you set out to do? No, <laughs> <laughs> not at not at all. Um, I fell into burlesque in London after dance school. Like you know, I went to this kind of very um, high art virtuosic conservatoire um and then of course you know you graduate and there's hardly any jobs <laughs> specifically mm. for that kind of high art um scale of things and um yeah but and then I went along to one audition and it was for a new wave uh dance troupe um and this was when the burlesque renaissance was sweeping through London this was the early noughties and so I got you know I, I did get swept up it was you know a great paying gig uh, we were performing on the West End there were like lots of like private parties with loads of money and it was fun it was like great fun um I wasn't taking it too seriously but um when I moved to Shanghai and my marriage started to unravel and I was like I'm not I don't really know what I'm doing here anymore I don't know what I'm going to do how I'm going to support myself I don't want to go home just yet um and as it so happened a uh, New York vaudevillian had just moved to Shanghai at the same time I did with big plans to open up China's first variety vaudeville and burlesque club. We met, of course, because Shanghai is, you know, as huge as it is, it's also like um, a very big college campus for expats. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so we met and um, when he saw me, he said, um, you have a face like old Shanghai and I have to wow. make you one of my starring showgirls. <laughs> now, look, <laughs> for the people who don't know exactly what burlesque is, because I think a lot of the audience might have an understanding of what they think burlesque is, but can you really lay down what it truly is for us? Sure. Um, yeah, people have their different interpretations, but I guess, you know, the purest form of burlesque is physical uh, comedic storytelling with satire. So um, it's kind of been around for like ever since the ancient Greeks were putting up satirical um, plays. Um, Commedia dell'arte was a form of burlesque that was in the Italian courts. French had um, Buffon clowning shows. Um, And also um, the most true um, kind of imitation of what we were doing would have been found in the Victorian era in the working men's clubs. Um, And it's basically always about the lower class, the working class, um, finding their entertainment um, and the shows being about um, subverting the establishment. So um, a lot of the um, comedy routines in the Victorian era, they were mocking the politicians of the day, um, the upper class of the day. Um, But what started happening in the Victorian working men's clubs was that um, the women who would get up to perform, they discovered that if they um, kind of couch their joke with an accidental quote unquote flash of an ankle or they like (laughs) accidentally drop their glove (laughs) while telling a joke that you know they would bring the house down because you know Victorian ages like no inch of flesh could be um, appropriate like would be appropriate in public and then Um, everyone was tightly buttoned sorry add that to the modern world where things are a bit more liberal again and you can imagine where things go right yeah Yeah, yeah. but the burlesque renaissance you know in the 21st century was like a reaction to Mm. you know conservatism um, almost in many ways not really it was a reaction to uh, a few things to like um the 90s rave culture which is all like about dj is god and everything is like quite androgynous so it's Mm. about bringing glamour back also a reaction to the fact that well in the west in london anyway like every couple blocks you could walk into a pub and or yeah and um and it would also like double up as a strip club as well after you know it was so easy to like you know or you know string fellows or like the many chains of strip clubs that were there so the fact that actually like gratuitous nudity was like easy to find like burlesque is about bringing the mystery and the tease back into the performance of um femininity and and sensuality and, and sexuality so it's like bringing the mystery back into the performance of that yeah it's quite amazing isn't it now yeah. look 
the next song you're going to play for us, well, you're going to play potentially a couple of songs because this point in time there there was it was there was upheaval, but there was excitement, and there was good times and there was bad times for you. So you're going to combine two tracks for us, aren't you? Tell us about this. Yes. Um, so I thought I'd play um, "The Man with the Golden Arm" by Elmer Bernstein, and I chose this because it's really a signature song of um, Chinatown, which was um, the burlesque club I ended up working at as a Chinatown doll and um, and I performed my first striptease in Shanghai to this track and also um, our burlesque troupe ended up doing a, a nightly uh, show to this track as well and it's just like a classic bump and grind, smoky and it's like also a beautiful arrangement. Mm. Um, so there's that song and then um, it's followed by Kanye West's Runaway, and I chose this because, um, well, running away um, emotionally, physically um, is, a, is a theme in my story, um, but it's also the song that my husband sent me as our marriage was um, ending, and um, I was listening, and I think it's such a be- like achingly beautiful track. Um, you know, and it sings a toast to the douchebangs, a uh, toast to the scumbangs. And it kind of, and I wasn't sure when I was listening to it whether he was talking about himself or me. And <laughs> he could have been talking about both of us, really. Yeah, wow. But I thought there was also something really beautiful because it was just about let's just accept that, you know, we weren't as good as we could have been. But, um, you know, let's just celebrate what we had. Of my dick. I don't know what it is with females. 
But I'm not too good at that shit See I could have me a good girl And still be addicted to them hood rats. And I just blame everything on you At least you know that's what I'm good at And I always find, yeah I always find Yeah I always find something wrong You've been putting up with my shit just way too long I'm so gifted at finding what I don't like the most So I think it's time for us to have a toast Let's have a toast for the douchebags Let's have a toast for the assholes Let's have a toast for the scumbags Every one of them that I know Let's have a toast for the jerk-offs Gotta never take work off Baby, I got a plan Run away fast as you can Run away from the baby Run away as fast as you can 24-7, 365 Pussy stays on my mind Alright, alright, I admit it Now pick your next move, you can leave or live with it It could buy cream with that motherfucking top off Split and go where, back to wearing knockoffs High, knock it off, Neiman's shop it off Let's talk over my ties, waitress, top it off Hoes like vultures wanna fly in your Freddy loafers You can't blame them, they ain't never seen Versace sofas Every bag, every blouse, every bracelet Comes with a price tag, baby, face it You should leave if you can't accept the basics Plenty holes in a ball of nigga matrix Invisibly set, the Rolex is faceless I'm just young, rich and tasteless P Never was much of a romantic I could never take the intimacy And I know I did damage Cause the look in your eyes is killing me I guess you knew an advantage Cause you could blame me for everything And I don't know how I'ma manage If one day you up and leave And I always find, yeah, I always find something wrong You've been putting up with my shit just way too long I'm so gifted at finding what I don't like the most So I think it's time for us to have a toast Let's have a toast for the douchebags Let's have a toast for the assholes have a toast for the scumbags Every one of them that I know Just have a toast for the jerk-offs Gotta never take work off Baby, I got a plan Run away fast as you can
You've been listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest today has been writer and actor Genevieve Chang. Now, you've lived an incredible life. Uh, it's, it's one I'm sure a lot of people would be very intrigued to have had even just a little bit of an insight into personally themselves. But look, yeah, beyond the ups and downs, yeah, what next? What are you up to now? Um, so, yes, after um, everything, after leaving Australia to go to London and Shanghai and um, living it up big and almost destroying myself in the process, um, I knew I wanted to come back to where it all started. I mean, that was kind of really important for me to find my feet back on the ground um, and actually to go back to the past was the only way for me to move forward. Um, so I came home, um, home being Australia, and I... Um, I didn't want to perform anymore. I really tucked myself away. I felt like, I actually felt like I'd been overexposed and quite burnt out and I got sick of being seen. So um, I started working um, in the arts behind the scenes, um, managing arts programs um, at a drama school. And uh, it gave me the opportunity to really quieten down and reflect. And I began to write my memoir, The Good Girl of Chinatown, which was released just a few months ago. It's amazing. Well, I'd highly recommend going out and grabbing it. And I'm sure we'll see a lot more from you in the future. Got to get the last track though. Flame Trees by Sarah Blasco, the cover. Why'd you bring this one on? Um, yeah, it's a song about coming home and um, facing up to your past and and also old friends. And just the sound of it, for me, is really about all the best things about Australia. There's something about the sound that evokes um, the land and the atmosphere and the... Oh, and the simplicity that I <laughs> that I really appreciate, um, and just knowing that they're the things that are really familiar to me and do make me who I am. Thank you so much again, mm. Genevieve, for coming on. Big thanks to my producer Nicole for helping us put this one together. Coming up next is lunch with Bridie Tanner, and I'll uh, see you next week. Driving Saturday afternoon just passed me by, and I'm just savoring familiar sights. We shared some history, this town and I. Stop that long forgotten feeling of her. Time to book a room to stay tonight. Number one is to find some friends to say you're doing well. After all this time, you boys look just the same Number two is the happy hour at one of two hotels Settle into play, do you remember so and so?